guys. Good morning. Made the error, or what could be a fatal error, of using uh, technology because I don't have a printer at home. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, look, the passage I'm preaching on is on the screen, so it's pretty obvious, but um, uh, I'll get to that in a sec. The reason I chose this passage is uh, we were instructed to preach on whatever's on your heart, um, I think. My heart's uh, faulty, so I um, I went to the lectionary, which is what I tend to do. Um, so if you don't know what the lectionary is, um, the lectionary is a set of like pre-selected scripture readings that are appointed for each Sunday of the year. It's a public thing; lots of churches around the world uh, use it. Lots of like whole denominations, I mean. Um, and so it basically means that I don't have to make the choice about what I preach about, or I have a very limited choice anyway because there's only a few passages, which makes my life easy. Um, but a lot of, I think there's uh, quite a few uh, groups and Christians and that who think, oh, that's a bit, it's almost a bit legalistic, isn't it? Like it's a bit uh, too structured, it's not spontaneous enough. Um, and I actually really love the lectionary and I'm just, this is just my hobby horse for now, so. Um, but I've, th- that's what it looks like. So you pick a Sunday, so June 30 is somewhere in the middle, um, and you get uh, those sort of passages. And, and uh, here's a few reasons why I like it. I'm just justifying my sermon, really. Um, um, <laughs> so the lectionary, it helps us to read and preach through the whole Bible and not just the parts that we like. I think that's a good reason to use it. It helps us to avoid preaching about only our hobby horses or favourite topics like the lectionary. Um, so uh, it, it, does, it, it hasn't worked for this section, but we'll, we'll get to a part where I didn't get to choose it. Uh, it grounds us in a rhythm of devotion and reflection, not just doing whatever we feel like. And it means that we read scriptures together with other Christians from around the world, which I love. So hopefully I'm vindicated, uh, but that's the lectionary. Uh, if you're interested in it, even if you just want to use it as a devotional tool, so that you're doing devotions, when you read throughout the week, you're reading texts that millions of Christians are reading. Uh, you can just Google it or Bing it or whatever you search engine you use. Um, and uh, Vanderbilt University has the, that one that I showed was from Vanderbilt. It's a great uh, you know, format for the lectionary. Uh, so anyway, on to the scriptures. Let's get moving. Here's the text I want to focus on uh, today. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Many of us, most of us maybe, maybe all of us, I don't know, have read this at some point or another. And it sounds good. But in another sense, that sentence makes very little sense when you think about it. Christ has set us free for freedom. It seems like a redundant statement. It's almost like saying, for being saved, Christ has saved us. Or, it's for coming to church that we've come to church. Like, uh, obviously, like, can you say something more profound maybe? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, of course it is. Like, of course. Why, why might Paul make such a strangely self-evident statement? 
Here's my argument, and I'm going to explore this. In Galatians 5, Paul wants to clarify the distinctive understanding of freedom that Christians ought to have. That's what I'm talking about today. How, how should Christians think about freedom? Because that's not exactly an abstract or irrelevant issue right now, is it? Freedom is the issue that is dominating our media right now. Our national conversation is focused on freedom. And at the centre of it all, you know, we're talking about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all that kind of thing. At the centre of it all is one notorious uh, rugby player who I'm not going to opine about today because I fully intend to remain friends with you all at the end of this sermon. But I am interested in the discourse about freedom that's currently being undertaken in this country. And I would add to that in our churches because this conversation is a big deal in our churches. Okay, so since, um, since the time of the so-called Enlightenment period in the 17th and 18th centuries, our understanding of freedom has changed radically. At that time, the focus began to move away from, uh, certainly away from church authorities and certainly away from communal ways of thinking about the world. We began to, it took a while, but we began to move towards thinking of the world as being focused on the individual. That the core unit, that the fundamental unit of existence was the individual person, not the community. And so freedom began to change as well, or how we understood freedom, I should say. And we began to understand it as the, the ability to take whatever actions we might choose without interference by others especially governments, but anyone. That you could choose to do whatever you wanted to do without being interfered with. Uh, John Stuart Mill, the utilitarian Enlightenment philosopher, he wrote in his book On Liberty that the only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs. And that's a pretty good summary of the Enlightenment idea uh, of freedom by a fantastic-looking fellow. Um, he kind of looks like Krusty the Clown. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll just erase that from the recording uh, <laughs> later. We'll just do an edit and it'll be good. So in other words, freedom was, or, or is, or what, whatever, the ability to determine our own lives, to make whatever choices we might want, so long as those choices don't harm others, which is fairly subjective anyway. So is that not the way we generally understand freedom in our own time, right? I mean, surely it is. When people speak of being free in our culture, isn't that what we mean? Being unrestrained in the choices that we make. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. That's, that's freedom in our view. And that is the, I would argue at least, is the default notion of freedom at the heart of debates around, say, freedom of speech. In the most extreme cases, people think that freedom of speech should mean that we ought to be able to say whatever we want 
regardless of how offensive or controversial or distasteful or even hurtful it might be. In other words, I should be able to say whatever I want, whenever I want, without interference. Here's the problem for us as Christians. That kind of thinking about freedom isn't even remotely Christian. Not even close. See, most ancient or classical philosophers, and not just Christian ones, but most well-known philosophers in the ancient world held a very different view of freedom. I mean, they all did. They all held a different view of freedom, but um, most held a fairly specific view. For them, freedom wasn't merely being unrestrained in one's choices. That might be part of it, but it's a small part of it. Freedom was much bigger. And even uh, Aristotle believed that defining freedom as doing whatever one likes... He thought that was defining freedom badly because he thought always acting according to your desires is slavery. And that's Aristotle. He, this, is, uh, uh, this is a few hundred years before Jesus. For these ancient people, freedom was this. The ability to fulfill the purpose for which one had been created. That was freedom in their view. The ability to achieve the ends for which you were put here. In other words, it wasn't just freedom from something, it was freedom for something. If you were to say to someone like Aristotle, remember who is not a Christian, well, I'm free. And if he, if he would say, why is that? And you said, I can... I can do whatever I want. He would look at you like, as if you just said something unintelligible. What do you mean you're free because you can do whatever you want? That's slavery. You're just at the mercy of your whims. That's not, that's not freedom. He would think that would make no sense. Now, the ancients, they disagreed about the purpose for which we've been created. So, you know, the fulfilling the purpose for which you've been created, why were we created? That's a whole different debate, right? But they all, or they generally agree that being free meant doing whatever that is, whatever that, you know, purpose is. And there is a vast difference between that kind of thinking about freedom and our own. Because that kind of freedom, that the, the, the view of freedom that the ancients held, asked questions like, why am I here? What kind of person am I supposed to be? What story am I a part of and how do I properly participate in that story? Whereas our questions would probably be, how much stuff can I do? Like, you know, who, if I want to do this, who's going to try to stop me? That's kind of like, the extent of our questions about what freedom might entail. The ancient understanding is far richer. And that ancient understanding was the notion of freedom that was held by the authors of Scripture 
And they saw, of course, the purpose as being directed towards God. So when Paul says that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, we can start to understand what it is that he might mean. It's to, uh, that kind of freedom is to fulfill our reason for being created. That's the reason that Christ liberated us. It's to participate in this grand story of God creating and then restoring the world. That's why we've been set free, to participate in that story. And this makes sense in light of what Paul goes on to say. And it's a lengthy text. We're going to, I'm going to read it because it's important. Hopefully that's readable. So this is from uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 13 to 25. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Not only, uh, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love become slaves to one another. Interesting. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. If, however... You bite and devour one another. Take care that you are not destroyed by one another. Walk in spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led in spirit, you are not subject to the law, and any means the Jewish law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Whoring, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, rages, rivalries, dissensions, heresies, envies, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-mastery. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. If we live in spirit, let us also be aligned with spirit. (laughs) A text like that asks us, it asks us to consider who it is that is really free. Is the person whose life is led by the power of their latest whim, really free? Is the person who makes seemingly free choices to satiate their fleeting desires, really free? Or, was Mother Teresa free? If she was, I very much doubt she felt like she had much of a choice to live in the way that she did. I don't think her life was a set of like daily choices to continue to live in Kolkata and do the things that she did. I suspect she felt compelled 
to live the way that she did? Or was Jean Vanier free? Now, if you've never heard that name, Jean Vanier started uh, Lash. Lash was, or became a movement. Originally, it was just a single house, and it became a movement of communities of people who went to live, uh, who, who lived in community with people with severe intellectual uh, disabilities. Vanier died last month, actually. So they spent their life living, not as carers, by the way. They didn't live with people with severe intellectual disabilities uh, as carers. They lived as friends. They lived as their friends. And I suspect that if you were able to get an unfiltered answer from most people in our culture, most folks would admit that they think spending your life living in community with people with such disabilities is actually giving up freedom. I suspect that's what most people would think, if you could get an honest answer out of, like, you know, a slightly politically correct, uh, incorrect answer from people, I, I suspect. Um, they would think that that is giving up your freedom, sacrificing your freedom, not living it out. So was, was Jean Vanier free? We have, as a culture, become so obsessed with protecting our ability to make whatever choices we want that we've forgotten that our choices are often expressions of our captivity to our lusts, our emptiness and our fears. Paul's, Paul's words about the works of the flesh um, uh, up there uh, in the middle, I don't think they're con- uh, condemnations. I think they're observations. When we live in such a way as to give priority to our flesh, namely our desires and our lusts, we end up engaging in those kinds of practices. By doing so, we don't experience the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. In other words, we turn away from the reason for which we were created, seeking to fill the resulting hole with that which can never satisfy. On the other hand, when we walk in step with spirit, led by God and not by our own longings, we will experience the true freedom of fulfilling our very reason for existence, displaying the fruit of such true freedom, love, joy, peace, and so on. And, and actually, particularly relevant, is, is the last one, self-mastery. <laughs> Freedom is the ability to not do what your desires tell you to do. <laughs> the truth is that a life lived in utterly true freedom, shaped by love, would probably yield very few choices for us. And we would willingly hand those choices over knowing that we are participating in a story bigger than ourselves, fulfilling the very reason for which we, were, for which we were created. Now in saying this, it might sound like I'm being a bit harsh towards those outside of the church and sort of maybe giving church people a bit of a pat on the back 
because, you know, we, we read Paul and we, we sort of think we understand Paul. But here's the thing. Paul's teaching is not aimed at those outside the church. He's not writing Galatians to the wider community of Galatia. He's writing it to the church in Galatia. And the fact is, I've been, I've been really disheartened by the way some Christians have gone on recently in demanding their own freedoms. Let's go back to the issue of free speech. Freedom of speech. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> it seems that, and I, I don't want to be misunderstood, I, what I'm about to say could easily be misunderstood and um, I'll take the risk, but hopefully it's taken in the spirit it's intended. It seems many Christians want to enshrine their ability to say whatever they want in the public sphere, especially with regard to LGBTIQ people. Now, I don't want to talk about that issue, right? I just want to say that we have been, we meaning some within the church, we've been fighting tooth and nail for the ability to say whatever we want about those people and others. But I have bad news for us. <laughs> Following Jesus means we don't get to say whatever we want. We don't get to say whatever we want. If freedom is fulfilling our God-given purpose of conforming to the image of Jesus and participating in God's renewal of all creation, then freedom of speech takes a very particular, even peculiar form. Freedom of speech for Christians is no more and no less than speech which contributes to our being formed in the likeness of Jesus and to participating in God's love-filled mission of restoration for the world. If our speech doesn't fulfil this qualification, it's not truly free. That's what free speech looks like. Now, this isn't to say that our speech shouldn't be truthful and at times maybe even harsh. I'm not suggesting that you should just go out and be nice to everyone all the time. That's not exactly free speech. I mean, niceness can be as torturous as, you know, harsh speech. So, uh, if, used, if used wrongly, I mean. I mean, look at Jesus' interactions with powerful people. You wouldn't exactly say they're always nice, so we, we, need to, we need to read the Gospels and work out how, what, what does Jesus look like and if we're meant to look like that, what should we do as well? I mean, think of the story, um, oh, think of countless stories of Jesus confronting the powers, the, uh, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, that kind of thing. Um, it's, sometimes there's a sting in the, in, in the tale. But, but we need to note that even when Jesus was speaking the truth in confronting ways, it was always from a place of love, not self-assertion or domination. So the best example I can think of, or the one that comes to mind anyway, you know when Jesus is speaking, uh, the, the rich young man comes to him and he says, you know, what do I, what do, I do to inherit uh, the life of the ages? And, um, and Jesus says, well, you, you know, you know, you know, fulfill the commandments, blah, blah, blah. And um, the guy, oh, I've done them all, I've done it all, you know, that's, what do I do, what do I do? And Jesus, Mark's Gospel says this, it's an easily skipped over detail. Mark's Gospel says, 
Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he says, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And note that that guy, he goes away, he doesn't follow. He, he decides not to follow Jesus. Jesus' words were too hard for him. But even in giving him a hard word, Jesus loved him. And if our hard words aren't done out of love, well, they're not free. I'd suggest that much Christian rhetoric at the moment is not driven by God's love but by our fear. Our fear of losing our privileges of becoming marginal in our society. We don't want to be on the edges. We, we want to be at the centre still. We want to have some power. But the church has always done best when it's not the majority. The church has always done best when it's not in control of society. Um, if you happen to remember, last time I preached, I told the story of Julian the Apostate and his response to the church, which at the time had no power, it was persecuted, but it managed to convert half the Roman Empire. Not by gaining political power, but by doing acts of love, such that Julian could say, this is my paraphrase, <laughs> Julian could say, those... I'm trying to think of a word that I can say on a recording. Um, those damn, is damn okay. Those damn Christians. They, they serve not only their poor but ours as well. That's how they were known. And on that reputation, they won half the empire without a single seat in parliament. Not that, the, not that they had seats in parliament, but you know what I mean. The truth is this, there's nothing to fear. God is working all things to their intended point in history, even if we don't understand how that's going to go. And we get to participate in what God in Christ through the Spirit is doing. That's it. We don't have to be afraid. So the question is, what is your freedom for? Not just what do you have freedom from, what is your freedom for? What is my freedom for? In um, one of the other <coughs> lectionary, I don't, I, I don't know what my next slides are. Yeah, there we go. Cool. Um, one of the other readings in this week's lectionary, uh, in the lectionary reading for this week, um, was is Luke nine uh, fifty one and onwards, and. At, uh, that story is about Jesus has, for the first sort of nine uh, or so chapters of Luke, Jesus has been in Galilee the whole time uh, with a couple of small uh, tangents um, early in the gospel when he's in Jerusalem, but as a child. But as an adult, his whole ministry is in Galilee. And he goes around teaching and preaching and healing and you know, doing his miracles and confronting the community leaders uh, over their corruption and all that kind of stuff. And he's extremely popular. Extremely popular. And then suddenly, or it seems quite suddenly, um, in Luke 9, 51, it's a famous verse actually, with, at least for biblical scholars, because they see this is the turning point in the gospel. Jesus has been super popular and then suddenly he goes, and the text says he set his face to Jerusalem. He just suddenly went, 
you know what? I'm going to Jerusalem. And the disciples are like, uh, okay, I don't know why we're going there. I know why we're going there. They think he's going there to take over. But actually, we know that that's not why Jesus is going to Jerusalem at all. Jesus' perfect freedom was expressed in his willingness to head into the midst of conflict at the center of power in Jerusalem to lovingly confront the powers that are rebelled against God and to die for the sins of the world. That's freedom, apparently. Christian freedom. Yay. Um, That kind of freedom is unintelligible to our world. But it's the moment to which all Scripture points. Jesus on a cross. The moment which defines the story of which we are a part as Christians. Jesus' freedom was for the reconciliation of the world, even to the point of suffering and death. And here's the thing, we have been called to follow this Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, by taking up our crosses. So the question looms over us, how are our lives, both individually and, uh, and as a community, how are our lives oriented towards participating in this kind of loving self-giving freedom. Freedom which makes no sense in our world. Answering this question is impossible in this context (laughs) because learning to be truly free is not something I can just tell you because, I mean, I don't know anyway, but, um, but even if I did, I couldn't just tell you. Yeah, it's lived. Learning to be truly free is an ongoing process for an entire community. One of the reasons we get together is because by being together, we learn what it is to be free. Because you know what? You know what freedom is? Driving Graham to get his treatments. Because that's how we learn to be free. Freedom is, uh, is giving financially to things that you know, need money more than we do because that's Christian freedom. It's self-giving out of love. Um, Learning to be free is getting frustrated by someone in the coffee line after church. Probably my kids. Um, (laughs) um, But that's freedom because in that moment, We learn what it is to enact reconciliation. Anytime we have any conflicts in this church, it's an opportunity for us to express our freedom by loving one another. That's why we get together. Sorry, one of the reasons we get together. We learn what it is to be like Jesus through being a community together. But I don't have any easy answers. I just know that it's an ongoing process of formation. That we, together in this, you know, this uh, pool of faith that we have in this church and in, you know, everywhere else, in other churches and whatever, we are formed into the likeness of Jesus through preaching and worship and prayer, fellowship, study, all the rest.
What I can say is this. We need to unlearn the concept of freedom that we've inherited from our modern world. We need to unlearn the idea that freedom is just getting to do whatever you want. We need to learn a new kind of freedom, one rooted in serving God and others and in dying to ourselves. And it won't be easy because Christian freedom is the inverse of everything we've been taught to think of as freedom. And if you're like me, you're going to suck at it. I mean, you're, gonna be <laughs> you're not going to be very good at it. But hopefully we get better at it as time goes on. Like I said, in worship, prayer, fellowship, communion, study, whatever. We can learn it together. We can learn how to be truly free. And the blessing of it all is that because true life and freedom comes in serving God, you don't have to do it. You get to do it. Let's pray. My prayer um, today is from St. Augustine. He wrote this. O God, to know you is life. To serve you is freedom. To enjoy you is a kingdom. To praise you is the joy and happiness of the soul. I praise and bless and adore you. I worship you. I glorify you. I give thanks to you for your glory. I humbly beg that you live with me, to reign in me, to make this heart of mine a holy temple, a fit habitation for your divine majesty. Amen.